Well, this week on the podcast, I'm joined by John Perry. John has a couple of great YouTube channels where he explores um, subjects like evolution. We go into a bit of detail about John's channels uh, fairly early on, and there are links in the description if you want to check them out. They are fantastic, so I would encourage you to do so. Uh, but John's an excellent communicator in the space of evolution. Um, and in the past, I've had some uh, theists on the show, and I've mentioned a few things that I've read um, about evolution from a theistic perspective that I found challenging. And what I wanted to do was have John come onto the show uh, with Daniel as well to explore some of the statements or thoughts that are very often presented by theists around the subject of evolution. Uh, we kind of tackle it in a fourfold manner. So we begin kind of looking at the scope and limits of science. Um, we then talk about abiogenesis, and sort of like how life first emerged essentially. Uh, then we look at evolution as the concept as well. And finally, we kind of close off on uh, the idea of DNA being a language. Um, it's a great conversation. I've got a lot of time for John and Daniel, as you know. Um, and I'm hoping John will come back on the show in a few months' time to talk about his own experience, actually kind of stepping away from faith and looking at evolution and kind of moving towards uh, a content creator, uh, an educator and a communicator, uh, as he is and does so well. Um, a few notes on, on this video. So obviously I'm not in my normal setting. I'm actually down in London at the moment for work. I had a big presentation yesterday that I needed to be in the office for. So uh, this conversation was recorded last night um, here in London. And uh, yeah, so there are a few things. The audio quality isn't as good as it usually is. And actually I think partway through my laptop switches from my AirPods to the laptop speaker and then potentially back again, but I'm not entirely sure. So the audio quality from my end might come up and down. So apologies for that to start with. And the last note is really that Daniel has to drop off partway through the call. Uh, there's something he needs to sort out with uh, with his housemates and uh, he needs to drop off and have a conversation with them very quickly and sadly couldn't rejoin because that went on for a bit longer than he thought it would. So uh, everything's absolutely fine, but yeah, Daniel does drop off uh, halfway through this conversation. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with John and um, if you find it useful or challenging or um, potentially a conversation you think worth sharing then please do share it with any theists or anybody trying to understand and deal with evolution uh, who might have those sorts of beginning questions or come against these sorts of things from uh, yeah different angles it's a really good opener I think to this space so I'd highly recommend sharing it um, as always if you'd like to subscribe then hit the like button as well and then finally the notification bell will remind you whenever we release a video here on when belief dies Enjoy this conversation. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion, and life. We aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why somebody holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold ourselves as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's great to have you with me as together we can explore this space. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, I'm joined by Daniel. Daniel, mate, how you doing? Yeah, not too bad, Sam. It's been too long, been too long. <laughs> it has, it's definitely been a while, but it's good to be back. I'm in, um, I'm in London at the moment for work, so uh, apologies for this weird, like, shiny glow that I've got going on here. 
usually the light's not up there it's it's here facing my uh, facing my face so uh, uh, there we go anyway anyway um we're also joined today by john perry john it's great to have you on the show it's good to be here i'm very excited this is gonna be fun it is yeah i mean so we we had initially reached out to you and said hey look let's chat um about evolution we've had some uh, theists on the show who've given us some of their views about evolution um, I've had PZ Myers on the show to talk about kind of evolution from his perspective. And I just thought it'd be really cool to get you on the show to ask you just some of these sort of questions that we ask or get asked from Christians as well. And just thought it'd be really good to kind of, um, I guess, bounce this off you and get your take. I know you've got um, you've got an amazing YouTube channel that covers all of this stuff. So um, yeah, we, we won't be doing that justice, I'm afraid to say, but it would be good to, um, yeah, it'd be good to jump into these questions with you and uh, and see what you think. Um, mm-hmm. So before we do, for those kind of one or two listeners who probably don't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a really quick kind of background to yourself and your channel and, and why you create content on the subject of evolution? Yeah, so the the main channel that I run is Stated Clearly, which i got a t-shirt here. But that is where I do animations about genetics, evolution, and chemistry. And those are for use in the classroom. Is I mean... My target audience is me when I was in high school. That's who I'm thinking about when I'm when I'm doing these. And they've been really popular, especially like the stuff on genetics, like what is DNA and how does it work? Uh, they, really short videos. Most of them are, you know, between five and 10 minutes long that just show you how the concept works. You know, the, the one on DNA shows you how DNA uh, is used as a template to produce RNA and that RNA is used to produce protein. And I just, you, you get to see how it works and it's uh very simple language that I'm using when I'm teaching these things. And that's been really successful. Students are really liking it. Teachers like it. And it turns out that just random people on the internet end up really liking it and getting a lot of use out of it too. I think, you know, especially in the U S we've had a, like evolution has been taught poorly. So the evolution videos are really popular, even among people that aren't, you know, in school. And then for some of the stuff that you can't really talk about in school, <laughs> things that are a little bit more controversial or just, uh, you know, I, I discussed issues of the interplay of religion and science a bit too on my second channel stated casually. And I also do really long, more in-depth lectures. So I've got one on the origin of the of the genetic code which is a very complicated subject and uh you know we have a two-hour uh conversation about that so that's where i do longer stuff stuff that's just i I can produce those videos faster because it's not animation it's just me talking kind of doing lecture style videos and then i do yeah the the animations as well i got started doing this um (laughs) Really, I was working for Oregon State University, helping teachers prepare lessons. So they were they were moving from teaching in the classroom setting to doing online classes, and I was it was my job to help people find a good way to do that aside from just recording themselves giving a lecture in their classroom. And it was working there that I just I put together these skills to put together these these presentations and I started doing them and it just took off. So I'm still doing it 10 years later. I've been doing it for 10 years now. So, yeah. It's been amazing to see the, um, 
yeah, the animations. And I mean, I, f- I find it a little bit annoying you that you turn around and say, yeah, you know, I just talk at a camera and I can produce these videos faster. Because when I see the videos of you just talking at a camera, it's like it feels so well poised. It's so well spoken. It's clearly laid out. Um, like I just, I'm currently just blurbing and, uh, and you're clearly not doing that. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it is remarkable. I think the way that you, I mean, this is why I want you on the show, right? You've got, a, you've got a great um, demeanor. You've got a great way of presenting yourself and you speak clearly, um, especially at a time when, um, there's so much complication Like people just like to, to complicate everything don't they, over the top. And, um, it's nice to have, um, yeah, somebody who just wants to talk about, uh, evolution, um, genetics, and, and these subjects in a in a clear and uh, respectable way. So uh, yeah, it's, it's good to have you on, mate. It's good to have you on. Cool. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, let's start off then. So I guess we have kind of got four sections that I want to run through, if if time allows. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of first section I would like to look at is really the sort of limits and the approach of science. So I guess to kick things off, it'd be interesting to understand um, <clears throat> how one should define science and what science's uh, limits and scopes really are. I think the best, one of the best ways to think of modern science is science is the ongoing collection and documentation of observations and an ongoing argument about what those, are, what those observations might mean. So we're collecting things that are just you know, verifiable facts, things we can see with our senses. Sometimes we augment our senses with things like microscopes and so on. And then we try to figure out what those mean. We put together theories, which are just explanations of what these facts might mean altogether. And that's, that's basically it. So the, the foundation of science is observation. And we take those observations, try to tie them together with explanations, things that we call theories and hypotheses. And so the, you asked what the strengths and limitations of this are. Uh, basically we're, uh, we're going from observations as the things that we trust. So, you know, if there's weaknesses in our ability in in our senses, and we know there are weaknesses in our senses, we can mislead ourselves. And a lot of science, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, figuring out what the strengths and weaknesses of our senses are. Right. Um, so that's, that's one limitation and then just there are things that are just beyond our ability to see, to observe. So right now there's, a, you know, trying to understand the origin of the universe, for example. We can use mathematics to extrapolate backwards as to what we think would have happened. We can use telescopes to look out, which also helps us see back in time because light travels at a specific speed. So when we're looking really far out, we're actually also looking back in time. But that has limits. We bump up against walls and we just can't get beyond those. And it can take a long time. We can get stuck for a long time before we find a way to get beyond whatever barrier that we're bumping up against. And uh, so, yeah, there, there are quite a few weaknesses with science, but it's the best way that we've figured out how to study the universe. Uh, we try very hard, you know, the, the way that you make a name for yourself in science is you either discover something new, you observe something that no one's ever observed before, or you put together a theory that no one ever thought about before. And it actually, it makes more sense of the observations than anything else that anyone else has presented. Or you can also debunk someone else's work. These are the ways that you, uh, 
make a name for yourself in science. And so with those incentives, science progresses really well. It, it corrects its own errors. Uh, you do get times where, um, you know, one researcher will get a lot of fame or a, just have a lot of clout and they can actually stall progress for a while, but eventually they'll die, right? And so you get, you do get this very steady progression and very constant correction of errors in science. And it's, it works spectacularly well. Uh, <laughs> I, People who just experienced science during COVID might not totally agree, but one of the reasons for that is that we had, uh, you know, people trying to make really fast decisions for entire populations with very little data. But the the slow, steady process of science really does help us come to a, a very clear understanding of how things work. Yeah, and I guess how then do we have that sort of appropriate sort of skepticism um of of sort of scientific theories because what you're saying there is it makes progress it self-corrects it does sort of challenge in in itself you know you get different theories that sort of replace or build upon one another so mm. and i i think particularly when we've interviewed a lot of um theists and apologists who have sort of talked about the problems of evolution abiogenesis DNA as information and these sort of questions, which I know we'll we'll get onto in specific. There's always this yeah. narrative of, "Hey, we're we're the true scientists. We're actually being skeptical of the status quo, and that's what science is all about." Is that the right sort of narrative we should have around this? How, what what could healthy scientific skepticism look like uh, and not look like? Yeah. Okay. So there's <laughs> if if you imagine. One really fun way to to think about science is imagine you wake up in a castle filled with puzzle pieces and you're just like knee high in puzzle pieces in this giant castle. You don't know what picture the puzzle is supposed to make. You don't even know if it does make it. Like you, you look at all the pieces, you don't see how they could possibly connect to each other. And then you, you just go around, you start searching and you find a couple that do fit together. And so you get a hunch like this must be a giant puzzle. And so you start trying to piece it all together. So those puzzle pieces would represent the observable facts that we have access to, and the actual putting them together to form a picture would be the theory building. So the it's actually fairly difficult to disprove a large theory, that a theory that's, that's got a bunch of facts that are already supporting it. But the one thing you can do is you can take those facts that have been collected and find a better way to arrange them into a different picture. And if you do that in a way that encompasses more facts that have been collected and the picture is able to lead you to new puzzle pieces, it can help you predict what puzzle pieces might be missing better than the mainstream theory, the mainstream picture eventually your theory is going to win. More people will just slowly start to go over towards your theory until all of a sudden no one cares about the old theory, that the old picture that people were trying to build in the past. So uh, theories are toppled over by better theories. If you, if you look at the history of science, 
it's uh it's very rare for a f single fact or something to be to debunk a theory what happens instead is uh if there's a fact that doesn't quite fit it's held to the side like uh maybe something's maybe maybe we just don't know where this fits right now it's considered an anomaly uh the to really replace a theory you come up with a better one so there are a lot of scientists who work in evolutionary biology who are just happy working with, within the theory that already exists. They're using that to make predictions about observations they should be able to find if they were to set up the, the appropriate experiments. They set those experiments up and they find those facts and they add them to the, the picture that has already, everyone's already been working on before them. There are other scientists who want to like, completely cause a revolution. And so they're trying to find... They're trying to poke at the, the overall picture that exists, and they're trying to build a better one on the side. Uh, and these, these scientists exist. They're, they're, they exist in biology. You'll, you'll find them in biology. Uh, they're in every field of science, really. So you have kind of these two different projects that people might be working on. The, a lot of the creationists and the, you know, the anti-evolution people they're not doing any of that. All they're doing is they're just trying to, I, I don't want to say that they're trying to trick people because I, I, a lot of times I think what happens is they've, they've tricked themselves into, like, they're not actually taking the time to learn about the, the picture that's been built so far. They're just trying to find little problems that they see and then trick themselves, trick their audience into thinking that that makes the whole thing not work. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the tricks that they're using to trick themselves and to trick other people, uh, it's really obvious when, when I watch their presentations, I can, I can point out exactly what they're doing and exactly what they've misunderstood or exactly what they're trying to hide from their audience. But they, uh, their audience can't tell because their audience isn't doesn't doesn't understand the what's what's actually been happening in science, like like someone like me who's been doing this for so long understands, and so they can be really effective. They can be really effective at using what seem like common sense arguments to just really just vandalize the scientific project. It's very easy to do, especially when you have a complicated subject like genetics that most people don't understand. It's very easy to just sabotage that for an audience. So there is a legitimate way to be skeptical, and that is to, to, to really go out there and try to build a better theory. Uh, first, you need to understand the theory that everyone's already working with. You, you need to really understand it. Uh, and you need to have some sort of a reason why you would think that there's a better way, and you need to build it. It's, it's hard work. But that's, that is how, uh, that's how new theories are produced. That's how old theories are toppled. And the people who topple an old theory with it, by replacing it with a better one, they are the people that win Nobel Prizes. They're, they get famous. They, uh, and that, I would love to see it happen. If, if, if someone actually thinks that there's a better way to go about this, I would love to see it. But it's, it's not what's being presented in these uh, the creationist I, arguments. Can I ask a quick question on this? Um, so yeah. a lot of the time I find that people don't necessarily create a better 
better puzzle as, we, as we're calling it and kind of pointing over here and going hey look at this puzzle it explains things more effectively than this puzzle and getting more people usually they just kind of uh maybe look at the puzzle that's on display and point at maybe a, a corner or a piece that might be missing or might not quite be aligned mm -hmm. or going you know this piece might be wrong and they might just start questioning like a very specific area of it so i guess right. the sort of question comes around so we're saying that the best the best way to actually challenge a theory isn't necessarily to point at the current theory and going this little area doesn't look quite right but that's actually it's to create another theory which explains that error or that area of confusion or contention more effectively that, that that's the differentiation is, is that correct yes John? yeah I explain that explain the parts that the current theory is having trouble with plus also all the things that the current theory already explained so so you, you got to do better than than the current theory and but you know, picking at picking at little parts of the theory that are weak—that is a, an important project, and that's what scientists who work in the field are doing. They're trying to pick at little parts and say, "Are we understanding this slightly wrong? Do we have, even though we have most of this picture does seem to be correct, are we misunderstanding this part here? Do we need to add something? Is there something else going on here in this section?" And that's that's what you'll see a lot of people doing. So, um, the like so evo devo evolutionary development they're starting to fill in a lot of the really big gaps that we have in biology so the process of evolution by natural selection is kind of a, this two-part thing you have descent with modification descent with heritable modification and that is acted upon by natural selection to produce adaptations and right now in biology we have a really good understanding of how natural selection uh, promotes things and deletes things that are that are not working. We understand how that works extremely well. What the Evo Devo people are working on is how is it that these variations arise? And there are other people working in biochemistry that are looking specifically at how specific mutations end up affecting the phenotype or the, the shape of an animal's body. Um, so these these different fields are really starting to fill out this kind of uh, this blank spot in our understanding of evolution, which is like physically, how do these little processes play out that that natural selection then um, can either promote or discard through through these uh, the processes of selection. So there's the the creationists don't tend to be doing that. There is actually, though, sometimes you will get uh, a creationist adult that'll actually really find a genuine weak spot in the field or just a spot that no one's been paying attention to. And they'll poke it enough that it'll actually get a scientist curious about it. And so they'll, they'll go start doing work there. So there's, there's actually been a couple of times where I think that the, 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 vandaliz the vandalism has actually been a little bit beneficial in some cases. I think Michael B. He did a good job doing that with the um, irreducible complexity concept, and he was he was applying this to protein evolution, and I think that put some fire behind some people to really study how proteins evolve. Now we have really beautiful experiments showing how these these uh, protein complexes evolve. It, really, really cool stuff that's being published now, and. I don't know. Maybe that, that stuff would have happened without Michael Behe pushing it so hard, but uh, yeah, I'm sure that that helped inspire at least some of that research. So I wouldn't say it's completely useless, but 
for me as a science educator, I would say they're doing a lot more harm than good because it's it's not hard to trick a naive audience with uh, things that are easier to remember and understand than the real science, which can be very complicated in some cases. And, and it takes a lot of effort to learn how it works. Yeah, and I guess uh, I guess there's sort of that that sort of skeptical approach within as an active science scientist working in the field trying mm -hmm. to progress uh, theories, and then there's sort of how do we as individuals sort of get our head around what these best theories are and how we might understand them and apply them to different challenges or you know, and obviously for many people who are in this space where they're considering how do I combine either religious or non-religious beliefs uh, about the world with some of these best scientific theories. I guess, you know, do you have any, you know, final thoughts or on this topic around how, how does the layman sort of really get to grips with some of these topics and how do they make sure that they're, they're getting some of the best information out there? Um, that can be really hard. Uh, it can be really hard to sift through the just the mountain of things that are said. So on the topic of evolution, for example, and we we see this too on the topic of COVID. It, it's actually, I think it's worse on the topic of COVID right now um, because the we have these kind of scientific authority type places like the NIH that have been saying one thing and you have uh, individual scientists who will say another, other things that contradict what the like government authorities are saying. And then you'll have people that you can't tell if they're just totally crazy or if they're onto something and they, they get labeled as conspiracy theorists. It, it's a big mess. And you see that too in, in the, the field of evolution. It's, it can be really difficult for the average person to sift through this. And even like for me, as much as I understand genetics and how evolution works and how viruses work and all this stuff, it's even been difficult for me to to, to sift through this stuff with COVID. <laughs> the um, <laughs> I think with with evolution, how can I even give a good? Uh, I mean, the world is really just messy, but, but have you heard the saying that uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence? This is like uh, Carl Sagan, I think, who says that. Uh, I've said this in several of my, my animations, and people get kind of angry, like, well, what's an extraordinary claim? Well, an extraordinary claim is anything that you find to be hard to believe, you know? So for for a Christian who believes in a young earth, young earth creationism, evolution is a very extraordinary claim. And so in order to convince someone from that starting point, they're going to need a lot of handholding. They're going to need a lot of evidence, maybe not a lot of handholding. They might be motivated to, to learn for, on their own, but it's, it's going to be a lot of work. They're going to need a lot of extra evidence. Um, 
my my aunt who doesn't trust vaccines and hasn't trusted vaccines for a long time, she's going to need a lot more evidence that the vaccines are safe than I would, who's, you know, I've been um, fairly okay with vaccines, you know. So I think understanding that different people are going to have different requirements for the the amount of evidence that's given to them before they accept something. I think that just understanding that that's how people are is important if you're a science educator, just to realize that some people are going to need more than others. And realizing for yourself what your biases might be going into a problem is also really important. Uh, and if you know or if you suspect that you have strong biases, uh, you should know that you're going to have to put in more homework before you finally um, figure out what's, what's really going on here. Uh, for me, I w came at evolution from a creationist upbringing. And so I did require a lot of evidence. And I was, I was so suspicious that I figured that maybe th the textbooks the scientists were in collusion or there was, there was some sort of conspiracy going on to make evolution look more legitimate than it actually was. Uh, I was actually told that as a kid by a Sunday school teacher that that's what was happening. So I was very suspicious when I started learning about from textbooks and so on about evolution. And so what I, what finally ended up convincing me is that I started making predictions on my own and then looking reading up about it afterwards to see if, if my predictions were correct. And one of the predictions that I made is that uh, the stinger of a bee must be a modified ovipositor. So the females lay eggs with insects, lay eggs with these weird ovipositors. They're, they look like stingers. Uh, I was, I first learned about them because I, I picked up a bug. Uh, it was a Katie did and it had this giant sword like thing on its, on its abdomen. And I thought it was a stinger and I, th I threw it really quickly. I asked my biology teacher what that was. He's like, Oh, that's, that's just an ovipositor. It's for laying eggs. And so I, I put together this hypothesis that, well, the stinger of a bee must be a modified ovipositor. And if that's true, only females should have them. Males should not. And then I looked that up and it was true. It's only the females have them and they are in fact modified ovipositors. So it was, for me, it was um, making a prediction on my own, then looking it up in a way that there, there'd be no way that some scientist knew that I was going to do that little test and, you know, lied in the textbooks about you know, bees and their ovipositors. So for me, that's, that's actually what it took. It took, uh, you know, careful, uh, actual, I guess you could say science on my own, uh, doing to, to figure out if this was true or not. And that's, I mean, that, that might be what it takes for other people as well. So <laughs> it can, it can take a lot if you're, if you're, if you have strong biases, it can take a lot to convince you otherwise. That's fascinating. I think um, it's, 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 it's weird because it's evolution as well that kind of got me to begin to really question my belief system. This isn't on my list of questions. I apologize. This is just a really weird tangent. But yeah. it was a sort of macro picture of of, um, of humanity's specialness, I guess. And then uh, I didn't really understand the sort of... Um, sort of line of hominin um, that we come from and how... 
diverse and long that is and how short the homo sapiens span is against like um, you know, homo erectus or, or pretty much any other mm-hmm. um, hominin uh, species or version whatever the right word is but i just it, it was that that really got me in. and and for you it was uh, it was something completely different in but in the same yeah. in the same incredible tale that is um that is evolution i mean one, one of the other things that i didn't really understand as well having been born and raised in a very um not necessarily fundamental, but a very kind of conservative Christian family was um, the difference between uh, evolution and abiogenesis, right? So I was always told that, you know, God started stuff off and that's just, just got to accept that that's what it is. And there was no real kind of explanation or exploratory, um, I guess, leaning towards being pushed into questioning these things a little bit more. So I think for the audience, because I, I didn't even know about abiogenesis until I started doing this podcast, right? And I'm like in my mid thirties now. So that's how naive I, I have been for quite a while and I still am very naive in this whole space so it'd be really helpful I think just to have a um, if you could John for us give us a kind of distinction between the differences uh, of evolution and abiogenesis yeah so evolution so sometimes you'll just call it you know adaptive evolution or Darwinian evolution is just this process of descent with modification descent with heritable modification plus selection equals adaptive evolution. So in order for this process to work, you have to have some sort of an entity that can make copies of itself. So parent and offspring. When the parent has offspring, those offspring are going to be similar to the parent and similar to each other, but with slight differences. And then if some of those differences make one of the children more efficient at survival and reproduction than its siblings and more sufficient, more efficient than its parents, uh, they're going to end up having slightly more offspring than their parents did and slightly more offspring than their siblings. And so you get, you start to build up these tiny, oftentimes tiny uh, advantages. And those that are, that come into existence with disadvantages, they end up being less successful. And so those disadvantages get erased over evolutionary time. So that is the process of evolution. Can I just in jump order... in really quickly? Yeah. I know, I'm sorry to be a pain in the ass, but I just know that somebody's going to say this in the comments, so it's probably good just to deal with it now, which is um, yeah. obviously we see things like mammals, especially today, that have obviously far less offspring than you know other things like bacteria or, or other things, flies, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, and kind of what you just said could sound like you're saying that the more successful something is, the more offspring it has. Um, therefore, because we don't have many offspring, we aren't necessarily as successful. Therefore, evolution, your position of evolution might not necessarily be true. Does, does that make sense? So somebody might hear it and say, you know, God yeah. must have done it because humanity doesn't have many offspring. And the idea that lots of offspring mean good evolution. Humanity has little offspring. Therefore, evolution might not necessarily be true on that basis. So could you just kind of help us understand that as well? Kind of Why do we yeah. have less offspring now than we might have done back in our evolutionary past? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that can make you have fewer offspring. So if when all when all else is equal, those who who can have more offspring quicker, they're going to be better off, right? They're, that which is better at at reproducing ends up being more common, right? It just, you know, those things that are better at being common end up being better at being common, right? The, but you run up against difficulties. So let's, let's think about uh, the wolves in 
uh, Yellowstone, for example. Wolves in Yellowstone have really harsh winters. There's not very much food in the winter. They have really abundant springtime and summertime. Tons of food, tons of things to eat, and you know, from from berries to elk. You know, there's it's great times. If you are a female wolf and you have babies all the time or at any time, well, if you happen to have them during the winter, you're going to be struggling to keep them alive, struggling to keep them fed, and you're going to waste all your energy. Your babies are going to die. You will have just gone through a horrible pregnancy. You risk your life being pregnant only to give birth during the middle of winter and then just watch your puppies die. You keep on doing that. It's going to be horrible. So the wolves there have, they only go into estrus. Those which happen to only go into estrus at the right time so that they would have their babies in the spring, those ones ended up successfully raising offspring to adulthood, adulthood, which could then have more offspring than the wolves that were just having babies constantly. So there are, there are environmental circumstances that make it so that waiting to reproduce at the right time is better than just reproducing as fast as you possibly can. So that's, that's one example of something that, that uh, will actually select for slower reproduction is you just have these environmental conditions that select for that. The other thing that happens is that as a population, when we talk about fitness, like how fit an organism is, that is your fitness is in comparison to the other members of your population. Because the other members of your population, those are the individuals that you are competing with to, to reproduce. The, they are the things that use the exact same resources that you use. Uh, you're competing with other, you know, if you're, if you're like a, a male deer, you're competing with other male deer for the females that are there that are available. Um, it's, it's actually your own kind that you are competing with most in the struggle for existence. You're not competing that much with the rabbits because they eat different food than you. You're not competing that much with the squirrels because they eat different food than you. The, it's, the strongest competition comes actually from those that are like you. Now, there's also a lot of cooperation that happens. Uh, you know, animals will live in herds and so on. But, you know, if you, if you watch deer during mating season, they are fiercely battling for mates. They, they become absolute rivals. Uh, in humans, this actually happens too during, uh, you know, go to a college uh, classroom and, and you'll see like all the guys kind of trying to be subtle about it, but like kind of, they're all kind of fighting over a, a handful of the, the girls that they think are most choice, right? Um, so we have, we have very strict competition uh, amongst things that are like us. So you have over evolutionary time, you have these, uh, the, the battle for resources actually gets divided as different uh, lineages start consuming resources in different ways. And, and, and the, the, the battles that happen start differentiating. You, you split up uh, an ecosystem into a bunch of different niches. There's, there's all sorts of energy to be harvested, all sorts of food to be harvested for the production of offspring. And different organisms start specializing in different things. And you actually, if you look at an ecosystem, 
most of the different species are not competing with each other at all. They're just consuming very different resources in that ecosystem. The, the trees are consuming sunlight and, and water. The, the bears are consuming meat and berries. The squirrels are consuming nuts and, uh, and so on. So the, the competition ends up being, being split. So even though bacteria reproduce way faster than humans, we're not usually competing directly with bacteria. We're competing with other humans, right, yeah. for reproduction. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. And I guess, you know, just in terms of thinking about one of the main objections that we so often hear from uh, theists around this is that there's, there's often this, um, uh, well, it's, the argument has been made that natural selection can account for modification and loss of parts, but that it doesn't have this innovative capacity. Um, it doesn't have the ability to sort of create new systems and create new um, sort of environments. And as you were saying, there are different uh, different things eating different things um, at, in order to survive. How do we how do we understand how natural selection has led to sort of that biodiversity through that? Yeah, yeah. So natural selection only has creative power if diversity exists in a population. So it can only select what's there, right? Um, so evolution, again, it's descent with modification acted upon by selection. So you can't, the, the process doesn't work if you don't have descent with modification, right? You have to have variation in a population for selection to select. Uh, that said, even if, even if you were to magically stop all mutations from happening, in a population, within that population, there's already a bunch of diversity that, that was already there from mutations that happened in the past. And so natural selection can actually funnel through the process of sexual reproduction. It can funnel different traits all into one little lineage. So let's, let's think of an example here. Uh, gobies are these fish that live in the ocean. Uh, if you look at a typical species, gobies species, they tend to live near the bottom of the ocean. They will, they'll swim around a little bit and then they'll perch on their, uh, their pelvic fins. So they swim with their pectoral fins and then they perch with their pelvic fins. They'll, you'll see them perch on rocks here and there. Some of them even have their, their, their pelvic fins have, have kind of transformed into what looks like a suction cup so they can stick to the sides of things. And they make their living as bottom feeders, just kind of going around scooting around on the, on the ocean floor. Well, as that population expands and takes up all the territory that gobies can take, it starts pushing up, the population starts pushing up against the, the, the land. And some of them have gone out on land, like, you know, during low tide in the mud, and they've gathered food up there, and then they go back in the water. And there are certain individuals are going to have traits that happen to make them better at doing that. They can, they have a little bit stronger fins. They can actually push off the ground a little bit. They might have, um, another one might have gills that are slightly stiffer so they don't collapse when they're in the air. So those gills can still stay nice and open and still keep pulling in at least a little bit of air, even when they're 
they're not in the water. These gills have been highly adapted to pull oxygen out of water, not air. So it's, it's difficult, but those with stiffer gills can do better than those with uh, more flimsy gills. And within that population of gobies that are living in the ocean, there's a bunch of individuals that have one trait or maybe two traits that would be good on land, helping, helping them survive a little bit longer on land to gather all that food that's up there. And what, what can happen is in the population that's really close to the beach is those which can go on land briefly end up being more successful and leaving more offspring. And those offspring end up eventually finding each other. And so all those different traits, those 20 different traits, 30 different traits, end up getting bred into one individual. And he, that individual is extremely successful on land. So then we get something like mudskippers. Mudskippers are gobies that can live on the shore. They, they have to stay wet, but they can... Some species are incredibly good at jumping around, climbing on roots, climbing on trees. They, they're amazing. They're amazingly good on land, very strong. They can stay on there for hours without having to re-wet themselves. Spectacular. Uh, and so we have, we have the expansion of what was one population. Now it's being split into two and they're expanding into different niches or niches. Um, different ecosystems with different, uh, prizes to be won, different resources that they're exploiting. And this just happens through the process of descent with modification acted upon by selection. So there is incredible creative power when you combine those two processes, descent with modification with natural selection. And I guess uh, just very similar to that, because obviously uh, for a lot of the uh, intelligent design and uh, creationist uh, apologists, there's there's always this idea that evolution should have some sort of guiding agent at the very least um and obviously for us we've engineered crops you know we've uh, done similar things to animals like dogs we've particularly bred for particular traits um we could even say like you've got things like sexual selection and birds of paradise as um, we sort of mentioned earlier um so can we say that sometimes agency is involved in the selection process and in the evolutionary uh, picture? Um, and does that help us to then consider, well, actually, is there ways that, is there a legitimate question of, should we disregard potential intelligent input into the evolutionary process? Or are there other ways that we can consider that? Yeah. Uh, well, I want to divide that question into two parts. So you talked about humans who are genetically engineering organisms, and then you talked about things like sexual selection. Uh, I want to separate those two things because the human has a deep understanding of what he or she is doing when he or she is engineering an organism or trying to like better take a crop and make it better for some specific function. Like I want to make take this crop and make it work in a desert, or I want to make this crop and add this gene from a bacteria so that it, it, it can fight off fungus or whatever. Uh, these are, this is with someone who has deep understanding of how evolution works, how genetics works, and they're trying, they're carefully planning for the future of the evolution of this little lineage. Uh, 
that is very much unique to humans. Uh, the question you asked is, could it be that, that that may have happened in the past? I suppose it's possible that some civilizations, maybe some super intelligent dinosaurs or something, uh, actually had a whole civilization and um, just somehow that got completely erased by a catastrophe. Uh, and But they actually did have genetic engineers and so on and so forth. Uh, that's something that, sure, you, you could keep that open as a possibility, but you wouldn't scientists wouldn't really chase that idea until there was something to chase, some sort of evidence that that actually happened in the past. Um, so, of course, it's possible, but we have no indication that that ever occurred. And there's no need, there's no need to suppose that something like that happened. We, we understand how evolution works, and it's extremely powerful. Just, just how we understand it right now, we know that it's extremely, an extremely powerful process. That doesn't mean that something like that didn't actually... That doesn't mean that hyper-intelligent dinosaurs didn't actually have genetic engineering labs, but we have no evidence of that, and we have no need to uh, suppose that that once happened. Um, so that, that's, that's what I would say about the uh, genetic engineers. Um, what about intelligence in general? Is that shaping the direction of evolution? Absolutely. I mean, an organism that intelligence is a trait. It's an, it's an evolved trait. It's an adaptation. And every, every adaptation that an organism develops gives it more, gives it a stronger ability to make, uh, to respond to stimuli, right? This is kind of what's what biologists talk about is uh, organisms can respond to stimuli and they tend to do so wisely. Uh, even if it's a cell, it'll, it'll, it'll oftentimes make good decisions that help it survive and reproduce because it's evolved the ability to pull in information from the environment and change its behavior according to that information. Uh, some people would want to call that intelligence even at the cellular level. I, I don't like to use that word until we get to thinking brains just because, uh, you know, people, people will get confused. Um, when you talk about a cell being intelligent, well, this it, is so sorry to interrupt. This is this is a yeah. really big part of a lot of theist evolutionary theories, right? Is the fact that mm -hmm. that the fundamental properties, cells, cell things that make up cells, are themselves pushing us in a certain direction. I can think of a few books, naming no names, that kind of suggest this. So, if you could just touch mm -hmm. on this a little bit more, that'd be really helpful. Um, so, th these organisms, they're not they don't have an understanding of the future. They don't. They don't understand that they're evolving entities. They don't. They don't have any understanding of this stuff. What's going to happen? So, let's like let's take um, a lot of birds are terrified of snakes, uh, and you know phobias. Phobias emerge. You know, I, I'm sure everyone knows someone with a weird phobia, right? I had an ex-girlfriend who was terrified of sunflowers, <laughs> like terrified. She was super creeped out by sunflowers. So you, you, get, you get phobias emerging that are, you know, somewhat random. And when a phobia happens to be linked to something that really is dangerous, well, that individual is going to be a better, better at surviving and reproducing than other individuals that don't have that phobia. Um, you know, so the, the birds that are scared of snakes are going to tend to live more successfully than those that are just like, oh, I'm going to play with this snake and see if I can eat it. Um, 
At the same time, if you're too scared of snakes, you're going to miss out on meal opportunities, right? Uh, so, so that this you could say that this this the being scared of things that are genuinely dangerous that's that's a sort of evolved intelligence, right? And that is affecting the future of the evolution of the lineage of the organism that is afraid of snakes like it should be. Uh, and so in that way, yeah, of, of course, the adaptations that happened in the past shape the future trajectory of evolution. So of, of course, these adaptations are changing the future, but it's not happening. The, the bird isn't scared of snakes so that it will change because it wants to change it, the, the future trajectory of its evolution. There's no sort of understanding there at a deeper level. It's so far as we know, it's only humans that really understand that. So even sexual selection, if, uh, you know, the, the red wing blackbird is really common here. I don't know. Do you guys have those in, in, uh, around where you're from? It's a blackbird with a bright red spot on its wing. I don't think so. No. They're amazing birds. Only the males have this, this red spot. It's a, it's a red spot with a yellow line and it's very bright. They're very proud of it. They show it off during mating season. They, they do these songs and they flash these bright red feathers and it gives away their hiding spots, right? The, it puts them in danger to show this off, but females are attracted to it and females don't know why they're attracted to it. They're just very attracted to this red spot. Well, I used to work at a wildlife rehabilitation center. So we'd take animals that were poisoned or hit by cars or whatever. And we'd nurse them back to health and then release them. It was just a fun way to get close to wild animals. And we had one of these red-winged blackbirds. And we were feeding it the diet that we thought that they should eat. And its red started to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as the weeks went on. We weren't feeding it the very specific, perfect diet. And so it couldn't maintain the red pigment. It's a very expensive pigment to make. It needs the perfect nutritional balance to produce that. So when a female is selecting for that, she's actually selecting for really good scavenging or, you know, food finding abilities. Uh, she wouldn't know that. She is a tr she's developed an attraction to this red spot because the individuals that happen to be attracted to the, this, this red they happened to have babies that were ended up being healthier because they were good at foraging. So that that's what the signal is actually conveying to the female. She doesn't understand that, but she selects for it. And the males that are able to produce that end up getting more mates. So it's a, it's a really beautiful uh, acceleration of, of, of the ability for natural selection to promote the trait of good foraging skills. But this is not, the female is not trying to change the course of evolution. She is adapted to do this and he is adapted to produce this brighter and brighter mark as time goes on. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support When Belief Dies. Firstly, would you rate When Belief Dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, 
would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description. And thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. I think I um, that... it, it helps a lot. I think it makes it very clear why you're wearing a red t-shirt. Um, just being oh, honest. Yes. Um, <laughs> no. Um, so I think it'd be cool to push further into this then. So I guess... Um, Sorry to keep bringing it back to you to to, to kind of basics. I apologise. Want to make sure we're we're really exploring oh, this um, as much as possible. Yeah. So it'd be really good to kind of touch on um, the branches or the strings or the threads or whatever sort of metaphor you want to use um, of um, evidence for for evolution. Kind of what what is, what are the different sort of um, yeah threads that we can use as evidence for uh, the strength of of, of evolution? Mm. Well, there's. <laughs> To just tease out how evolution works, the, the the fundamental processes, the best thing is to just do breeding experiments with organisms, which we've been doing for centuries because we wanted to breed food that tastes better, right, or that's more nutritious. Uh, so a lot of a lot of what we know about evolution comes from just studying what people ended up breeding when they're doing farming and and domestication of animals. There's a lot of really good evidence there. Another another really nice branch of evidence comes from comparative anatomy of organisms that are closely related. And you can see, like like I talked about with the gobies, the, 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 there's the gobies that are marine gobies and there's the ones that live in the mud, the mud skippers. It's very obvious that this, they're closely related. They have Their anatomy is nearly identical except for the parts that help them survive on land. Those are the parts that have changed. So we can do comparative anatomy we can do literal experiments in the lab with breeding and so on. And then it, it, that, that helps us tease apart how evolution works in real time, uh, how it actually works on kind of shorter time scales to see the evolutionary history, uh, the connections between different lineages, like are reptiles and mammals connected? I mean, they're pretty different, but they're also pretty similar. If we go to the fossil record, the fossil record is very much not complete, but it's there's enough there to really clearly see the merger between mammals and reptiles, for example. We can see, as we go back in time, the, the, uh, the mammals get more reptile-like. And we, we can see they still have these, these characteristic traits of the, uh, the teeth. They're very mammal-like still we can actually see where some of these specific traits first emerged. We can see organisms that are transitional between the reptilian state and the mammal state. And so that's another huge source of, of wealth of knowledge about evolution. And now we can also study the genome. We can study genetics. We can actually look at what's happened, what sorts of mutations have occurred and how those mutations are occurring now in populations. That's really interesting. Um, Daniel just just taking some time, by the way. He's, um, he's got a few things he needs to figure out. So um, 
yeah, just yeah. N- nothing serious. Just needs to sort something out with his uh, with with his housemates. So he he might be back. He might not. We'll see how that goes. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned here is is about the fossil record. And I think um, a lot of time people say things like there aren't enough fossils to bridge the gaps. Um, it's too difficult to explain how flying came about. I know someone like um, Jerry Coyne does a fantastic job of exploring uh, how actually kind of we can begin to see creatures that began to kind of spring from tree to tree and actually you begin to see sort of wingspans change, for instance, the sort of um, gliding squirrels that we have around today. Um, but I think it'd be interesting to kind of hear you look at, the lights are slowly going off in this room, sorry, it's because I'm uh, working in my office, I'll walk around in a second. Um, but basically, it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about sort of, do we have areas where we think the fossil record is too scant to prove evolution or not? I know one of the reasons why we might be missing some fossils is because um, you need a very specific sort of kind of climate or or at least area for the bones to actually kind of you know, become fossilized, essentially. So that can be quite tricky, but um, it should be good to get your take on that. Yeah, well, so there's lots of... <laughs> we, we would love more fossils. We always want more fossils. But the the fossil rec- what the fossil record does for us right now even in the form that it's in. And it's when people say that there's, there's not good fossils, they, they haven't been to a museum. I mean, there's amazing fossils. We have a lot of fossil information. Uh, There are a couple of specific lineages where we, we don't fully understand what happened. I think that still right now with, within turtles, like the transition to turtles is still a little bit there's a there's enough ambiguity there there's enough gaps in that record that people debate quite a bit about what the different steps in that transition from you know more normal reptiles to turtles was with the the shell this amazing turtle shell we do have some uh transitions that are obviously within that lineage but there's not quite enough to satisfy everyone that we can tell a a really clean story as to what the different stages looked like. But we really understand this well with the origin of mammals, for example. We understand this pretty well with birds as well. Uh, we, We have some really nice examples of what feathers look like at different points in the transition. We have really nice examples like so Archaeopteryx, for example, he has this big, long reptile tail, which was covered in feathers. Uh, birds today don't have long reptile. They don't have bones, big, long bones in their tail like a lizard. They have a short little nub on the, on the end. Archaeopteryx is a really nice transition between reptiles and birds. He has t- the, the species had teeth. The species had claws on its wings still, three claws. So all three of the fingers in a bird's wing. Today, you can't even really tell that they're fingers unless you know what you're looking for. But in Archaeopteryx, it's super obvious that those are three fingers. And they still have three claws on them. A lot of times, birds will only have one claw today. Like chickens only have one claw on their wing. Uh, ostriches have three claws still, but the those three fingers are fused together in such a weird way that it's hard to tell what, what it's what's going on there. So we do have uh, beautiful data points showing us what these transitions looked like. But yeah, of course, there's we always love more. You know, there are certain lineages where we're like, ah, there's a lot of ambiguity here. We, I, I wish we had a way to figure this out. 
uh, one of the one of the problems with, with turtles, and this is also a problem with bats, is turtles and bats both developed an adaptation that was so successful, it's so helpful for them that once that adaptation was obtained, they spread really fast, and it that makes it hard for us to pinpoint where they came from. And so it makes it hard to even know where you should dig for the fossils. Like we know in time, roughly, where we should be digging to find the bat fossils, for example. But we don't know where in the world to be looking because there's, they spread far and wide as soon as they mastered flight, right? So the, even the oldest bat fossils that we have, they have wings that are pretty much modern. I mean, they still have claws in all their fingers, which is different than modern bats. It's more primitive than modern bats, but there there's we don't fully we don't even know where to look for the the ancestors that would be transitional between flying and tree climbing. We happen to have found a bunch of those with birds, but it's it was kind of luck, you know. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I mean, one of the um one of the comments I hear quite a lot is the, the phrase like, you know, a pigeon will always be a pigeon. Like even if it keeps continues to have stuff, a pigeon will always be a pigeon. And then people point to things like bacteria and obviously bacteria have been around for, you know, an extraordinarily long time and haven't evolved past the stage of being bacteria. And then um, individuals point to experiments with, uh, say, throwing radiation at uh, flies and how you get some sort of genetic changes to try and deal with it but nothing that really works or changes a fly from being a fly necessarily it still is just a fly um so i think it'd be really interesting to kind of hear kind of what does it take to i guess make something change like are, are we are we at a point in our science yet to understand that sort of divergence um, because a lot of kind of theists might point to things like i mentioned yeah, pigeon being a pigeon that's just a quote people throw around or uh, like look at something like bacteria and kind of go hey look bacteria have been around for this long they've not changed um, there's a chance bacteria might be on other planets or asteroids or comets or whatever um, because they are theoretically potentially quite easy to come about compared to things like you know um, a photosynthesis um, entity like a plant uh, or a sort of um, mammalian creature like we are or a reptile or whatever they're, they're far more complicated so it'd be interesting to kind of hear kind of what what do we think it is that makes something shift from a a to a B, like what is it that makes that actual transition? And we can see it in the fossil record. I, I fully understand that. We can look at kind of proto-humans if we're going to class ourselves as true humans and see where we've come to today. But a lot of people will point to other things and go, well, the only reason that happened is through intelligence or through God or through whatever it is. Like what, what is it that makes something shift from one thing to another? Because it looks like evolution maybe goes down cul-de-sacs or hits dead ends at times. It should be good to get your take on that. Yeah, well, let me separate the why are bacteria still bacteria question from just, you know, what what it, what does it take to uh, cause a transition? Well, I mean, the if you look at pretty much any domesticated plant or animal, you can see just that even within just a th couple thousand years of humans selectively breeding for things, dramatic changes can happen in the form of an organism. So I mean, look at dogs. I've, <laughs> my dogs are, uh, well, they're about baby, human baby sized. They evolved from large wolf-like ancestors. 
some dog breeds today are larger than the wolf-like ancestors that they came from. You know, like Great Danes are huge compared to we think that the the uh, the the population that most I mean. Dogs are actually a, a mix of th this ancient population where most of their genes came from, this ancient population of, of mid-sized wolves. Plus, uh, you know, we have a little bit of uh, constant f gene flow from modern wolves. And uh, there's also, there's a species in, in Europe as well. It's the golden... I can't remember what it is, but there's there are a couple of different canine species. Even coyotes can actually sometimes successfully interbreed with dogs and get their genes into that gene pool. But dogs have this incredible diversity that we've we've developed just through selective breeding of for different traits here and there. And if you look at certain breeds like the Norwegian Lundhund they've developed really complex adaptations that are completely unique to that one breed. Like the Norwegian Lundhund, it's got extra fingers <laughs> or extra toes. Uh, it's got, uh, it has ears that can, it can pinch them shut on command, which due to the, the movement of different muscles in the ear, uh, as people were selecting this to, to hunt in caves, it can now actually pinch its ear closed and then kind of move it around like a telescope to hear in very specific spots when it's inside of a cave hunting for cave birds so that stuff isn't falling into its ears all the time. And people were just selecting for the dogs that could get birds out of caves. And this ended up popping out without them trying. They were, they were just favoring the dogs that did the best in the caves. And this is what happened. They have, it's the ones with extra toes, insane flexibility, and these like little telescope ears that they can, they can uh, use. So we know that novelties can arise. We've, we've seen this through just a selective reading of our animals. Uh, and one argument that people will say is they'll say, oh, well, but dogs are still just dogs. Um, they are dramatically different from each other. And if you just give that more time, I and mean, this is hundreds, this was thousands of years that we've been breeding them, only a couple hundred years that we've been really trying to breed super specific uh, types of breeds, you know, with kennel clubs and so on. So we know that evolutionary change can happen extremely fast. And already there are certain dog breeds that don't do so well when you try and breed them with other breeds because of genetic differences that are starting to become barriers for reproduction. And these barriers of reproduction can become permanent. So you, you have a, a population that used to be one population. They end up being split. They evolve down different pathways for a while. When they end up coming back together again, they can't breed with each other. And when that happens, you have complete separation forever of these two genomes. Uh, you know, humans and chimps are in this boat. Like the humans and chimps can't mate and have produce offspring. There was actually even a guy who tried this, did a bunch of experiments back in the... Like, I think it was right before the World War II he was doing this. And I believe, I think he was a, he was a European guy who ran away to Russia because people thought he was a freak for doing this. So he was hiding in Russia and trying to continue these experiments. Didn't how, work. How, how, was he, how was he trying this? Just so I'm really clear on this. Like... He was artificially inseminating women who volunteered. I think people who were extremely poor. The, right. Gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, carry on. Um, and then, 
And then he was doing the opposite, it artificially inseminating chimpanzees with human sperm. So, yeah, <laughs> creepy stuff. But I mean, it's also it's also kind of interesting that someone tried that and yeah, we found out it, it doesn't work. Okay, um, there are myths that it does work. There are myths uh, if you go if you talk to people in Africa, they'll tell you that it, that it happens and that there are human chimpanzee people. But there's no scientists have never verified that, right? Um, so we are we are very similar genetically, but we're different enough that it just doesn't work uh, if these two species try to cross. And that means that you are permanently separated. You're on permanent alternative trajectories in your evolutionary, you know, future. You will be separated indefinitely. This has also happened with, it's it, likely this has happened with these, with mudskippers. And, the, you know, there's, I think like seven species of mudskipper now. I don't think any of them can, can successfully cross with each other. And they can't cross with the, gobies that they evolved from so the it, it takes time it takes uh, we know from these domestication and other experiments that dramatic variation can pop up we know that uh, barriers to reproduction can also pop up and we've actually seen this happen too permanently we actually witnessed it happen permanently in insects and so on that reproductive barriers have popped up and this is how you get lineages to split forever and continue just millions of years down different pathways. So you get dramatic differentiation. So I guess, kind uh, of, sorry, can't carry on. Well, I, I, I feel like maybe, maybe that I addressed or at least tried to address part of that question, but we all had the bacteria thing as well, right? Yeah, so I mean, so I mean, so this is this is where I know everyone's got it up on my phone actually. So I mean, I was watching uh, the, the the Lex Freeman podcast. I'm a big fan of Lex Freeman. Um, he spoke to Nick Lane on the Origin of Life uh, just a couple of days ago before recording this, and uh, he was talking about how um, basically bacteria kind of got to this point where um, they just stopped doing anything other than that, and then other things began to evolve from there. Basically, we got photosynthesis and, and other sorts of things. It's a great conversation. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, he makes a really, really interesting point that kind of like, you know, to, to get bacteria is, is easier than it is to get kind of more advanced life. But, um, it's, it's this kind of, it's the stopping of something that has the therefore kind of hits a cul-de-sac or a dead end. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure we know what the reason is, doesn't continue onwards. Um, and just you know, at times, uh, certain groups of people have kind of said, you know, that is a sign that kind of you need to have a uh, intelligence or a guiding force to push things forwards. Um, so it was really kind of the sort of bacteria thing was around that. It was kind of pulling off this sort of um, this sort of secular viewpoint, and kind of kind of phrasing within a sort of theistic mindset. Um, so yeah, then if you've got anything else to kind of think or share on that. All right, cool. So one of the when we're thinking about bacteria, so why are bacteria still bacteria when everything else or all these other things evolved into much more interesting organisms like humans or bats and and lizards and so on? Uh, there is a field of evolutionary biology that studies what are called key innovations. And a key innovation is either a single trait or a group of traits that have accumulated that takes an organism and pops it into a new plane of, uh, of exploit that it can exploit. So we talked about this, the, the gobies that became these 
mud skippers and so on. So uh, there was a suite of adaptations that accumulated in these gobies, allowing them to really conquer the shoreline. And this is a whole new area. They're not competing with their ancestors anymore. They're not competing with that, that same population they used to be competing with. They're now competing just in that new, very rich ecosystem. Uh, our ancient ancestors, our microbe ancestors, long, long time ago, went through a key innovation. It was the development of mitochondria. So mitochondria are these things that power our cells. They produce ATP for us in mass quantities. And they are actually ancient remnants of bacteria we now know from a bunch of very careful studies that were that were done back in like the like the eighties and nineties. We were able to figure out that yeah, these mitochondria, these things that we used to think were just organelles, little organs inside of our cells, they're actually the ancient remnants of bacteria that merged with a group of organisms called archaea, which are also, if you were to see them, you would think it was a bacteria as well. It's a very simple organism. So a bacteria got inside of an archaea and it didn't die. It somehow survived in there and was able to reproduce. And the two organisms, the host organism and the, you could call it a parasitic organism or the swallowed organism, they started dividing tasks and through this division of labor, they ended up being dramatically more successful at harvesting energy in certain environments than bacteria were. So that was a major innovation, what we call a key innovation that just rocketed the this new organism into new niches that it could exploit, new types of, of ecosystems that it could survive in. And our evolutionary trajectory has been dramatically different from that of bacteria ever since. Turns out that this has happened multiple times. Uh, plants also have uh, organisms inside of them that, that can't have a separate origin. They have mitochondria as well. So, so these, these organisms that had mitochondria in them to start with, uh, their lineage divided into plants and animals. Uh, so the plants kept that mitochondria and then they added more. They added chloroplasts, which were also uh, photosynthetic bacteria at one point. And so there has been these these really neat innovations through, in this case, endosymbiosis that have dramatically changed how these organisms can live and uh, pull in resources, harvest energy from the environment. Bacteria that are still bacteria, they just didn't have that happen in their lineage. They didn't merge with another organism. And that's why they're still doing basically the same thing. These key innovations, they're very, I guess you could call them fluke events. They're chance events that just dramatically change what this organism can do and what its lineage is going to end up doing. Sometimes, a lot of times they're not as dramatic as, you know, two organisms merging in one single event. You know, with, like, like I said, with the gobies, the, this was probably lots of small adaptations that finally accumulated in something that could do really well on land. So multiple traits that became a key adaptation. But we do have these cases in the past of a very immediate, what have happened in one generation, transformation. The those early organisms that had 
these bacteria inside of them, they probably, the relationship between the host and the parasite was probably very clunky. It might have been very parasitic at the start. They, they might have been actually antagonistic towards each other. But over evolutionary time, they, uh, they adapted to each other and began adapting so closely to each other that for a long time, when we discovered mitochondria, we just thought that they were organs inside the cell. And then we, we finally realized, no, these things are actually bacteria. That's amazing. So does that help it, answer that question? It does. It also boggles the mind a little bit. I think um, it is yeah. absolutely fascinating. And, and uh, Nick Lane in this video kind of talks about um, um, talks about this further as well and, and goes into this. It's, it's a really fascinating conversation. I mean, he also makes a really interesting point, and this is just me kind of, like not confirmed, but kind of going back into what you were saying, which is like um, if you if you take a flat worm and cut the head off of it, depending on whereabouts you manage to do that um, that separation, you'll get either a very similar or a completely different sort of head form. And it depends whether that head is mm -hmm. going to be fit for purpose or not. Whether or not this flat worm will then be able to continue and survive and mate and and, and move on, etc. Um, it, it's it's just a really interesting reality that some for some reason some uh, points within the evolutionary uh, process there have been key moments of um change where things could go one way or the other and they've gone a certain direction and there are other areas where mm -hmm. things seem to have kind of reached a bit of a stalemate not necessarily and stopped but um not progress as much as we'd like them to necessarily um continue yeah. on i guess kind of talking uh, again looking at the sort of theistic uh, viewpoint and um, i promise you i won't uh, i won't ask too many more questions but there are a few more around this because i think it's it's just so mm -hmm. good to get uh, to get your view on this, John. So thank you. But um, there are kind of views. So, for instance, um, Thomas Nagel, he's a well-known philosopher, uh, looks at consciousness and those sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. He's an atheist, but he also doesn't necessarily believe in the uh, materialistic view of uh, evolution due to the sort of complexity around it, essentially. And then uh, people like um, Barbara McClintock. I'm not saying she necessarily you know, kind of like swings one way one way or the other. I'm not sure, but I know a lot of theists use her work, especially with um, a specific sort of crop and um, sort of gene splicing it can do itself as potential pointers to the intelligence that, again, genes can have. I know you've already touched on this, but it's just it's just such, it's almost like one of the pillars of theistic evolution. Uh, I just think it's really important to kind of touch on it. So kind of, would you mind kind of giving us your view, A, kind of on... Um, I mean, these are two massive questions, so feel free to take them one at a time, but yeah. um, sort of, I guess, those that don't necessarily believe in God and still look and marvel at the complexity of evolution and therefore can't just say it's, it's a, you know, the materialist answer is correct. And the second question is around the gene splicing of a specific crop and why that therefore makes some theists believe that there must be an intelligence within the gene mm -hmm. uh, to make it make those switches if uh, a certain section of the genome is damaged yeah um what was the philosopher's name again thomas nagel uh, yeah thomas nagel so thomas nagel i remember reading his paper it was a while ago but if i remember correctly his hang-up was consciousness he thinks that consciousness is too complicated of an adaptation to have evolved yeah, is that yeah, right? yeah that basically that's how that feeds yeah. in he's a, he's a very famous yeah. conscious philosopher yeah yeah, so, and that is, um, you know, like consciousness is something we don't understand. We don't even understand how it works. People disagree on what it even is. And 
before we can really say much about how some, uh, before we can start to really study how something evolved, it's important that we understand how it works first. Like uh, that, that is really important. And so he's right in that it's not something that evolution can really say much about. The only thing that we can really say about consciousness is that it seems to me, um, I don't know how he defines consciousness, but it seems to me that other animals, things that a lot of people would call lower animals, like dogs and even flies, they seem to have something that I would call consciousness. They seem to experience their existence, especially dogs. I mean, I don't totally know if a fly experiences being alive, but they seem to. I, and actually, even when I look at um, single-celled organisms under a microscope, like a, when a bacteria is swallowed by something, if it has a way of detecting that it was swallowed, it'll go into a panic mode. And that will sometimes help it burst out of whatever swallowed it. I have no idea if it feels scared and panicked. But to me, in my dumb... I project my own self onto everything that I see. It, It's acting. It's, it's freaking out. So I want to say that it's feeling some sort of an emotion. When you understand how emotions seem to work with the neurochemistry and so on, bacteria don't have any of that. So... It must be, I must be tricking myself when I feel that this bacteria is suffering and panicking. But I don't know. It, it's, it's a really complicated question. And now, to make things worse, we have computers that's, that are starting to trick us into thinking that it might be alive or conscious. Uh, and this is, <laughs> you know, it, it's a very complicated subject. We don't understand how consciousness works. We don't, uh, this, is a, this is a problem in philosophy. This is a problem in bio, biology. Uh, I don't know when it's going to be solved, if it ever will. Even if it is solved, I don't know that it'll be solved in a way that's gonna be satisfying to anyone. I, you know, I, I feel like for, for a human to fully comprehend the human mind, like really comprehend it, it's kind of like, asking a dog to swallow itself you know, like that that last bite is really hard <laughs> you know you just you just can't do it i i kind of wonder if um any any individual human will ever fully understand be able to comprehend how human consciousness truly works uh, hopefully i'm wrong hopefully we do figure this out and it is something that you can actually teach a student and they can figure it out in a couple of weeks or so but uh, who knows? So I would say that um, he's safe to have the doubt that consciousness could evolve for now because, yeah, no one knows. Um, but I also remember when I was reading that paper, there was a bunch of very simple things that he seemed to not understand about the process of evolution. So it was kind of like, for me, it was, uh, it was frustrating to read that. But I, I do get his argument and the, the argument that a lot of Christians have that consciousness could not, could not evolve. Like, fair enough. We don't understand. Yeah. So we don't have an answer. So. And, and I, I completely get that. For, for, for me, the, the problem is the sort of next step, right, where you put said scholar or philosopher, as Thomas Nagel is, onto a pedestal and goes and go, this atheistic philosopher doubts evolution could 
produce X, Y, or Z, and therefore evolution in its current synopsis can't be true. And I'm, I'm very happy to say that our theories of evolution are going to develop over time as we learn more stuff and we do more science, basically, and mm. we explore this, which is really, really exciting. Like, that's a great thing. Um, but the problem I have is when you begin to um, deliberately find somebody that is outside of your worldview who, who critiques something that you want to critique as well and then point to that and go, therefore, yeah. this entire thing doesn't make sense. It... it, it yeah, that frustrates me. Anyway, I won't, yeah. won't go onto a high horse. It'd be great to go into Barbara McClintock and talking about uh, gene splicing. Yeah. Well, one more thing on, on the consciousness sure. thing. We can give we can give a really flimsy evolutionary answer. You know, it's not going to be very satisfying. But because we seem to see varying degrees of consciousness in organisms, we could we we can see a little ramp to the evolution of of consciousness, right? I mean, chimpanzees are a lot more similar in the way that they interact with each other emotionally uh, and intelligently than, you know, even like dogs are. So uh, we do see this, what appears to be a ramp with similar to us and less similar and less similar and less similar the further you get from humans. But that's, um, I'm very much aware that that's going to be an unsatisfactory explanation to most people that really want to understand hmm. this. We don't understand how consciousness and, works. And, and interestingly, so, to have my own little put on this as well, is, is this Thomas Nagel wrote the paper, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, which literally looks at this right. sort of, uh, this sort of yeah. definition of, um, of, of qualia and um, essentially um, experiential uh, properties that, that something would have. And whether or not that is that is consciousness is, is is consciousness potentially some sort of more fundamental property that that things have like trees or rocks or atoms and and the quality the experiential elements that come with consciousness as things evolve and change over time uh, is that different and that that's where the philosophy kind of comes in is it's quite interesting but then um, probably not for this conversation yeah yeah oh yeah yeah i know no it's great yeah, yeah I've, I've read i read his what is it to be a bat uh as well this was Again, this was a long time ago, but uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I, I like his work. I think he's he pokes at interesting things. Barbara McClintock was a corn geneticist. Or she's a geneticist, and she worked a lot on corn. And back in the 1940s, she discovered what we now call transposable elements, or commonly called jumping genes. These are stretches of DNA, genes within our genomes, genes in the genomes of corn and pretty much everything, which are able to jump around within the genome. So they can actually, some of them will cut themselves out and then insert themselves into a different spot in the genome. They, they code for a protein that can allow them to do that. And then others will actually just make copies of themselves. They will make a copy of their, their genome and just insert that somewhere else in the host's genome. Jumping genes obviously can cause all sorts of chaos. They are considered mutagens. They cause mutations. Every time they just move around, even if they're just ones that do the uh, cut paste, moving around can cause all sorts of chaos inside the genome. Uh, the ones that can copy and paste, those obviously they can fill up your entire genome. You could be nothing but this transposable element. You could be nothing but this jumping gene. So they're very uh, detrimental to an organism. However, when we find these in our genomes, and by the way, our genome consists like almost like 40% of our genome consists of transposable elements. 
And when we find these elements, we see that they are being suppressed by other stretches of DNA in our genome. So we are producing molecules that actively suppress these jumping genes so that they can't jump. And actually, most of the jumping genes in humans are, are extinct jumping genes. They've suffered a mutation that stopped them from being able to do what they used to do. We can tell they're jumping genes by their sequence, but then we see that they're broken. Uh, point mutations have broken them. So they're ancient remnants of past jumping genes. One of the things that Barbara McClintock discovered, she was working with strains of corn that were super, super inbred. And they were inbred to the point that there was all sorts of problems with the corn. And she found that sometimes the problems could be fixed. Like these jumping genes, they would cause new traits to emerge. Just when a chunk of DNA moves to a new spot in the genome, it can cause a new trait. Some, sometimes they would cause a new color of the leaf. Sometimes they, they'd cause a new color of the, uh, the uh, corn kernel. And sometimes they would reverse negative mutations that have happened in the past just by moving around and you can actually re reverse some damage that had been done earlier. There is an adaptation that we know of in bacteria. It's called the SOS system. It's a whole system that when a bacteria is really stressed out, when its, when it's DNA is being damaged, it starts producing a protein that will stop the cell from trying to reproduce. When a cell is reproducing, that's a really stressful thing to be doing. It takes a lot of energy and it can cause DNA damage in and of itself. And so when there's already DNA damage in the cell, the bacteria will produce a protein that stops the cell from trying to reproduce. And instead it will focus all of its efforts, all of its energy on trying to repair the damaged segments of DNA. And then once that's sufficiently repaired, it will start reproducing again. The SOS system is obviously an adaptation that bacteria have evolved for survival and reproduction. And one of the arguments that some scientists have been making is that jumping genes might be an adaptation as well that's very similar to the SOS system. And the reason they have been making this argument is that normally jumping genes are not jumping around in the genome. They only start jumping around when a cell is really, really stressed out. And so they're saying, oh, well, maybe this is like the SOS system. Maybe what's happening here is that when the plant is really stressed, what that means is that whatever it's, it's doing isn't working. And so in a desperate attempt to uh, try something, try anything that might make things better. It's going to just let these jumping genes jump all over the place, mutate the heck out of its genome, and then maybe it will suffer a mutation that happens to help it. This is what we call mutational rescue. And there is evidence that mutational rescue has helped plants in the past. Uh, we know that there are beneficial mutations, uh, beneficial gene sequences that plants have that were caused by jumping genes moving around in their genomes. And because jumping genes really only move around when the plant is really stressed, the obvious conclusion here is that this, these adaptations were the result of mutational rescue. So the argument that scientists are making, they're arguing, some of them, and this is a minority, they are arguing that jumping genes evolved for rearranging our genomes when there's an emergency. Intelligent design advocates have latched onto this, and they're saying, oh, look, jumping genes are a form of intelligent engineering. These, these genes are engineering the genome. They are intelligent entities. And it's kind of a weird argument because they're, <laughs> I'm not totally sure where they're trying to go with this, 
because the intelligent design community exists to argue for the existence of God, and he's the intelligent designer, but now they're saying that there's these jumping genes that are also intelligent designers. They're just using this to kind of like throw in some woo-woo muck into the waters, like, oh, look, there are these intelligent agents that are inside of our genomes, and they help us adapt to new situations. Therefore, Jesus rose on the third day, you know? It's kind of a desperate attempt to make something seem more special than it is. Well, it turns out that the origin of jumping genes, we don't know the origin of all of them, but we know that the origin of a lot of them is viral infections. Viruses do something very similar to jumping genes and that they take their genomes and they insert their genomes into our genomes. Retroviruses do this. Then when the time is right, they will start building viruses. Those viruses will escape and get into another cell. Well, the enzymes that they use to get their genomes into our genomes, those are the same enzymes that a lot of these jumping genes are using. And so it looks like these jumping genes are atrophied viruses. So their origin is a viral origin. They weren't inserted there by Jesus. They weren't, they didn't evolve specifically for the purpose of saving us in a desperate situation through mutational rescue. These appear to be the genomes of viruses. And we know that when a virus infects a cell, the cell starts doing all sorts of things to try to silence that virus from doing its work. But if you stress a cell out, it can't stop the virus from doing its work and the viral infection will go crazy. I mean, people who have uh, like cold sores have noticed this. That when they get sick, they start to have an outbreak of their cold sores. And that's because their, you know, their, their body can't, keep fighting off that virus, can't stop that virus from doing its thing. And so it goes and it does its thing and it causes chaos for the person. So this is exactly what we see jumping genes doing. They are active only, almost only, when the cell is stressed. The rest of the time, they are being actively uh, silenced by the cell. And so it looks to me and to many other people like this entire system is not actually a system that evolved to help us when times are tough. Instead, it is just an example of genetic conflict. The cleanest explanation is that jumping genes are selfish genetic elements, which sometimes end up doing good things for their hosts. But really, they're just trying to make copies of themselves. They're trying to do their own thing. And the rest of the genome is trying to suppress them and stop them from causing absolute chaos. Barbara McClintock's work is wonderful. She, she won the Nobel Prize for it. It's in every biology textbook. Really fascinating stuff. Jumping genes have had a huge impact on our evolution, uh, but we don't have reason to think that they're some sort of an intelligent entity. And finally, in this little last bit, is something that the creationists will not tell you about. They don't want you to know about this, for sure, is that the vast majority of the things that jumping genes do for humans is they give us diseases. So hemophilia is caused by jumping genes. Uh, muscular dystrophy is caused by jumping genes. M a whole bunch of different cancers are caused by jumping genes. So these, the vast majority of the mutations that they cause are detrimental. It's just on very rare occasions, they can cause a mutational rescue to occur.
Okay, so we've discussed science, we've discussed abiogenesis, we've discussed evolution. I think it'd be good to begin to talk about DNA as a as a code, as information, essentially. It's one of the ones that um, is, is definitely kind of pounded as another of the pillars of uh, theistic evolution. Um, and it'd just be good just to kind of touch the high notes um, on where we've been going for a while now, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But I guess the sort of first big question is, is it accurate to talk about the genetic code as being a language? Yeah. The genetic code has some very specific linguistic properties. So depending on how you want to define a language, you can talk about it as a very primitive, simple form of a language. It's, it is appropriate to say that because of some of its unique properties. But a lot of people get confused by that. The word language has a lot of baggage because we use human language, which is extremely complicated compared to the genetic code. So people want to associate, if you call the genetic code a language, well, it must be as sophisticated as English. That is not the case. It's probably important to point out here that when I'm talking about the genetic code, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the sequence of an organism's DNA. So each individual has a slightly unique sequence of DNA. Yours is almost identical to mine, but slight variations. And we are fairly close to chimps, but a lot more genera- uh, variations. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about genetic code. That's that's the genome. That's the, the sequence of nucleotides in an organism. The genetic code is this thing that most people learn. Some people even had to memorize in high school and college biology, which is the mapping of codons onto amino acids. It's the way that genes send messages to ribosomes, instructing them how to build proteins. This thing is the thing that has these linguistic properties. The way that genes communicate with ribosomes, that they use codons, which have been assigned to represent amino acids that proteins are built out of. And if that sounds crazy to people, it doesn't, or if it doesn't make sense, again, there's a two-hour video you can watch where I explain in detail from the bottom up what this means and why I can say that a codon functions as a symbol in a signaling system. I think probably the best word to use to describe the genetic code is to say that it's a signaling system. It's a genuine signaling system that has evolved. Uh, So because this signaling system uses symbols, uses these codons, and those codons had to be somehow assigned to represent amino acids, a lot of people think that this must have been designed by some sort of a creator. Uh, But there actually is an evolutionary process. When you have two organisms under selection pressure to cooperate, they will actually develop signaling systems between them. And this works just through the process of descent with modification acted upon by selection. Most people can easily understand that an organism can adapt to its environment. So if I swim, if I'm an animal that swims a lot, but I don't have webbed feet, any mutation that causes a slight bit of webbing could be selected for until you get full-on webbed feet. Well, when you have two organisms that are both evolving 
at the same time to cooperate with each other. They can actually adapt to each other's evolved uh, features. And so you can get very abstract signals that develop between these two organisms. We talked earlier about this red um, color on the shoulder of the red-winged blackbird, and that is an honest signal of health and the ability for that male to find food, find good food. It's an honest signal to the female. If he can't find good food, that thing turns a dull, rusty color. It's, it's the, the physical makeup of it. So she is looking at an abstract signal, this red color, and she is has evolved to be attracted to that. She doesn't understand what the signal means necessarily, but they are communicating through an evolved signal that is it's it's symbolic. It's purely symbolic as to what this male is capable of. And a very similar thing has happened all the way down at the level of genes in our genome. We have genes that have evolved to communicate with ribosomes through a set of signals that, that we call codons. Uh, this, the way in which things like this can happen is well understood in theory, so in, in general theory. The specific details about how the genetic code actually evolved, like the, the actual selection pressures, the actual, uh, uh, you know, what it looked like at different stages of evolution, that is not well understood. That's an area of investigation. It's a, it's a hot topic of debate among scientists. Uh, and there's, it's not clear when we'll really have really nice details there, but the general idea about how things like this evolve is very well understood. Uh, it's just, it, it takes a little bit of effort to learn how that works. And so creationists can easily exploit that because most people will not have taken the effort to figure out how that works. I guess the sort of final question I asked, which is different in some ways, but very similar in, in other ways, and kind of um, might sound a bit grating against what you just said, but I think it's still a bit more of a deep dive into the sort of similar-esque question, which is a re really around the sort of um, this idea that it, it has to be a conscious mind that develops these sorts of things, right? It can't just be... Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, uh, micro-scale processes that are pushed through natural means that haven't got a guiding hand over them. And I guess it must be just to kind of really close this massive loop. I know we've been going in circles, but it's mm. it actually builds up this big big picture around these sort of four key pillars that we've been looking at. Mm -hmm. Kind of what would you say against this idea about it being a conscious mind that makes uh, something like DNA seem to be um, a, a language and where you just said it's not a language, but theists would still say it potentially is a language. So what is it that you would say that it isn't a conscious mind and therefore it, it could happen through uh, yeah, micro processes um, via kind of natural means, I guess? Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people don't appreciate how similar the process of evolution is to the process of trial and error learning. In principle, they are identical. They, they work in the same way. It's just that evolution takes a long time. You have descent with modification is the trial. And then whether or not, whether or not that works, uh, it, it might be an error or it might be successful. Uh, Every time there's a there's a variation that pops up, that's that's put on trial. 
it either works or it doesn't work. And so this is very similar to, uh, you know, two organisms that don't know how to communicate with each other, but are capable of trial and error learning. They can develop signaling systems. One of the really like adorable examples of this is the badgers and coyotes. Have you ever, have you seen this clip of the, the badger and the coyote that are hunting that are like the coyote is summoning this badger to go with them on a hunting trip? Yeah. There's this great little, uh, it's like a five second clip that, uh, these people caught on a, one of these camera traps and there's a, there's a tunnel that goes underneath the road and there's this coyote and he's getting all excited. It looks like a puppy getting excited when he's, he's trying to convince you to follow him somewhere. He's doing this with a badger and the badger follows him and he seems kind of reluctant, but he follows him and they go off in this tunnel together. It's like, it's like a Disney cartoon, you know, it's amazing. But the, we've known for a long time that coyotes and badgers will hunt together and uh, Native American stories talk about this going really, really old, passed down many generations. They talk about the badger and the coyote hunting together. They hunt ground squirrels together. And biologists have observed this happening for, yeah, there's lots of papers on it. And it turns out that just the, the different styles of hunting with badgers and coyotes make it so that they can they're, they're actually more successful hunting with each other than they are hunting two badgers together or two coyotes together. It's just the difference in how they hunt happens to be a really good match. But the longer they're together, the better they are at hunting. And they're better at hunting because they're, they're picking up through trial and error, understanding what the other one is going to be doing. They're, they're picking up subtle cues and they're, they're understanding those through trial and error and they develop this communication system. It's easy for us to understand how that could happen, right? We, we do stuff through trial and error all the time. Uh, if, if it can be learned through trial and error, it can also evolve through trial and error. It just takes longer. And so the, the idea that you need a conscious entity to develop a signaling system is... That belief stems from not realizing that evolution by natural selection is a trial and error system. It's very similar to learning through trial and error. John, there is um, probably no one else that would be willing to take these kind of uh, crazy questions, I guess, and uh, and give such in-depth and intelligible answers to them. I think it's it's because you've been through a similar situation with faith and kind of looking at science and, and, and progressing your world as well that you can kind of take these questions and and deliver answers so well to them. So I just want to say thank you so much for oh. um, yeah sitting with me for the last two hours and going through this and really helping um, myself and my listeners understand more um, yeah these questions from this side and what it looks like mate so yeah john thank you so much and before i let you go uh, would you just help the listeners know where they can find your work find you reach out all those sorts of good things yeah uh my youtube channel my main youtube channel is stated clearly so that's where you find the animations that are very streamlined uh and then stated casually is the youtube channel where i have longer form lessons we do deeper dives and we do i, I touch sometimes on the the conflict between science and religion and, uh, you know, whether or not that's even necessary and so on. So 
yeah, that's those are the best places to find me. I do have a website, statedclearly.com, and there is where you can contact me. There's a little contact form and so on. And you can, you know, find links to my Patreon and all that stuff if you want to support me, which I definitely would appreciate. But yeah, that's that is where to find me. And this was this was seriously a lot of fun. Like, the the questions that you're asking, they're some of like the the funnest things to think about. And these I I really like these hard questions, these uh well thought out questions that you've you presented here. So, thank you. Thank you, buddy. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate you coming on. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online, check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.